John 8, starting at verse 1 until verse 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, the, the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Do keep that story open in front of you. We'll uh, come back to it in uh, just a couple of moments' time. Uh, it's really great uh, to see you this evening uh, at the end of quite a tumultuous week. I wonder how your week has been. Uh, certainly quite an exciting one uh, in the political arena. I'm not sure whether you particularly uh, had chance to vote uh, in the elections on Thursday, and I'm not sure uh, if you did, uh, whether uh, or who you voted for. I'm, I'm not even sure what you made of the outcome. Uh, I wonder if you resonate with the lady, I've forgotten her name, but who has gone viral over social media in Bristol, who when a few weeks ago was greeted with news that there was going to be another election, said, oh no, not another one. Uh, and it all went viral all around social media because there seemed to be something about how she said it and what she said that captured something of the mood of the nation at that point. Uh, but to be perfectly honest, uh, I'm not sure uh, that she got it totally right. Uh, there is something I think that we can be enormously grateful for about the privilege of holding elections. Uh, elections present a phenomenal opportunity that I uh, wonder sometimes whether we might take for granted in our uh, very peaceful uh, UK situation. They give us the opportunity to, uh, to hear our leaders. Uh, they give us the opportunity to look at the character of our leaders. As we hear what they say, they give us the opportunity to see if we think they're naming things correctly. Have they, have they got it right? Have they understood the problem? 
Uh, not only have they understood the problem, but have they also understood what the solutions to that problem might be? And much more than that, in kind of a whole host of sometimes quite intangible ways, is this somebody who doesn't just get the problem and offer a solution? Is this somebody who lives what they say? Is there authenticity? Is there integrity? Do they walk the talk? Elections, I, I was sat in my office as we were at a polling station on Thursday, and there was that kind of profound weight of silence and of gravity, realizing that this was quite a poignant and important moment. We were talking about leadership. We were talking about naming reality. We were talking about solutions to problems. And we were talking about deep integrity. And as all of those things swirled around, I was preparing and thinking through our passage for this evening. For the next series, the summer series at the 6 p.m. service, we're going to be asking very similar questions, to be honest, of God and his character. We've got a sermon series that is all based around the character of God. And tonight we're going to be looking at that story from John's Gospel. We're going to be looking at who God is and what God does. We're going to have the opportunity to see what he does, to hear what he has to say, to, to ask the question, God, are you naming reality correctly? Are you diagnosing the problem? Are you offering a solution? And is there integrity between what I hear you say and what I see you do? Are you faithful to your words? And so that's the series that we're sketching out for the next few weeks. Before we get to the content of uh, the passage from John uh, this evening that uh, Diane's just helpfully read for us, uh, we need to ask a fairly fundamental question about this particular passage. And the question goes something like this, uh, did it happen? Uh, you'll see uh, from your uh, Bibles, there's an editorial note in there. It's on page 1073, if you've uh, shut them up. Uh, page 1073, an editorial note. In fact, in my Bible here, the whole passage is in italics. Uh, and you see that the note says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 50, uh, 753 to 8 verse 11. Uh, in fact, almost all of the early manuscripts in Greek of the New Testament don't have this particular passage here. It doesn't surface, uh, at least in the biblical uh, witness, until the 5th or the 9th centuries. Uh, when it does emerge, quite often it's inserted in Luke's Gospel rather than in John's Gospel. It appears quite often just after Luke 21 verse 38. You see, because the language uh, for uh, scholars who, uh, who look closely at Greek doesn't actually particularly sound like John at all. It sounds like the type of language that Luke would use. You know that you've got your own individual kind of tics and manners of speech that make you you uh, and the person you're sat next to the person you're sat next to. Uh, and so there's, there's been a huge debate as to whether this sounds more like John or whether it sounds more like Luke. You see, the really important question isn't, does this sound more like John? 
John, or does this sound more like Luke? The more important question is, does this sound like Jesus? Does this sound like Jesus? Is this the type of thing that we can see and hear Jesus saying and doing? And on that question, the answer is a much more certain yes. Uh, in fact, uh, at, at this event, or at least one very similar to it, was already being kind of gossiped and written around the early church less than a hundred years after Jesus' death as the early church wrote letters to each other. And if we look through this encounter as we're about to do, it seems to have more than one or two resonances with Jesus' meeting with the woman at the well, somebody who's been caught uh, in unfaithfulness and the opportunity that Jesus gets to show her his truth and love. And so the rather more compelling question is, does this sound like what Jesus would do? And so we're going to look at it now to see that, yes, it's fully in keeping with God and his character, and particularly with the character of God that we see in Jesus in John's Gospel. And so let's turn there uh, now. Uh, As we look at this uh, passage in John chapter 8, I'm really grateful for uh, two other Johns who have helped me to understand a little bit. Uh, about this passage. The first is a chap called John Samways. Some of you, uh, if you've been around in Oxford longer, will uh, maybe uh, know John. He used to be vicar of St. Matthew's just in the south of town uh, down here. Uh, Before that, John was a a geography teacher at the school I used to teach at in High Wycombe. Uh, John's paths and my paths didn't cross at all. He'd uh, left teaching well before I arrived in teaching. Uh, He'd left to join uh, the ministry. Uh, But I was aware, even though John and I had never met, uh, amazingly, in many ways, John prayed for me every Friday morning. Every Friday morning, John would pray the same thing throughout the 12 years of my teaching career. And I even knew what John prayed. John would sit there every Friday morning and would pray that I would be filled with grace and truth. Every Friday morning, grace and truth, grace and truth. It comes straight out of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling amongst us. We've seen His glory. He's full of grace and truth. Every Friday morning, grace and truth. Uh, The other John uh, is Bishop John Saxby. John was uh, the person who spoke at my ordination service in Christchurch Cathedral here, Uh, and we were away on retreat together in the days leading up to it, and he'd spoken from this story, and he picked up on that idea of grace and truth, and the way he explained it was like this from this passage. He said that the boundary of God's truth is perhaps drawn surprisingly tight, perhaps tighter than we'd ever thought possible. And alongside that, the boundary of God's grace in this story, the arms of God's grace, reach perhaps further than we'd ever thought possible. Those are the two surprises that we're going to look at this evening. The boundary of truth, tightly drawn, the boundary of grace, the arms of God's love, widely spread. So let's have a look at uh, that first uh, surprise. The boundary of God's truth is perhaps tighter than we ever might have thought. At the start of the story, Jesus is uh, in the temple courts. Uh, You'll notice that he's uh, sat down 
Uh, that's the usual posture for teachers. I'm not sure whether you know this, that's the reason that we have chairs in Oxford University. We appoint people to the chair of physics, or the chair of theology, the chair of theology, uh, chair of uh, philosophy. Uh, traditionally, teachers teach seated, and so Jesus is sat, and the, the people are gathered around him. Verse 3, the, uh, the Pharisees arrive with this uh, woman who's been caught in adultery, and their aim is, is pretty clear. Uh, in parading this woman shamefully and very publicly, they're aiming to parade their own cleverness, uh, their own rightness and good standing, uh, and particularly their own political savviness. If you think you've seen political chicanery within the election process over here, it's got nothing on what we see going on here. You see, they asked Jesus a question. Jesus, uh, should we execute this woman? It sounds like a fairly simple yes or no question. But you see, if, if Jesus says no, he's at enormous risk of dishonoring the truth and the law of Moses. But on the other hand, if he says that this woman should be executed, he's going to risk a real run-in with the Roman authorities because they reserved the right of execution for themselves. And so what's Jesus going to do? You can imagine the kind of everybody waiting and kind of looking at this seated Jesus, wondering what's going to happen. We don't know what Jesus writes in the sand. It's one of those questions that people said, I'd love to ask Jesus what he wrote in the sand. We, we, we just don't know, verse 6. But what we do know, whatever Jesus draws in the sand, that he draws the boundary of truth surprisingly tightly, perhaps more tightly than the Pharisees were ever expecting. Verse 7, uh, Jesus says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. Very clever, deeply authentic, thought-through answer. Uh, his answer bypasses, actually, some of the problems that he could have uh, dwelt on, but he decides not to. He decides not to ask where the male offender is. Adultery is a two-person crime, uh, and so uh, he, he, he somehow decides not to focus on that element. He decides not to focus on the fact that they've got their reading of the law wrong. Although adultery is a capital offence, the method of execution isn't prescribed, and so it doesn't necessarily need to be by stoning as they assist, but insist. But Jesus neatly sidesteps issues which really aren't particularly of relevance. Equally, he neatly sidesteps the trap that the Pharisees have laid for him. If you notice, uh, he doesn't undermine the law. He doesn't try to airbrush away the truth that this woman was caught with another man in adultery. But actually, in saying what he does say, he stays the hand of the executioners, and so he avoids running into problems with the Romans. And having bypassed and sidestepped, in a sense, the irrelevant stuff, Jesus homes straight in to the heart of the truth. 
You see, the real truth, the real surprise that we've got going on here is that the Pharisees share exactly the same problem as the woman. They've all been caught being unfaithful. Uh, Their unfaithfulness might not have been through the physical act of adultery. It might have been in how they've looked at other women. Uh, You might remember Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says this, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. More than that, more than how they look at other people, the Pharisees' unfaithfulness had been a case not just of unfaithfulness towards other people in how they'd looked at them, but also unfaithfulness towards God in how they behaved towards him, expressed in a whole variety of lifestyle choices that have gone way outside the boundaries of his truth. You might remember that in the Old Testament, God had specifically tasked the prophet Hosea to live out a specific lifestyle in order to reveal to Israel just how unfaithful God's people had been to his ways of life. This is what God says to Hosea in Hosea chapter 1. Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. You see, the surprise for this group of Pharisees, the truth that Jesus homes directly in on, is that they're just as unfaithful as the woman that they shockingly and publicly parade, and that therefore they are just as deserving of death. And so verse 9, all you can hear in the background is the gentle thud of stones falling to the floor as one by one the Pharisees quit the scene. I wonder if the surprise for us is that by nature, we're the Pharisees. Our problem is that we've been unfaithful to God and unfaithful to his truth. Uh, In a sexually liberated and permissive culture, uh, that unfaithfulness Uh, might be in physical ways. Our sexual relationships can often lie outside the boundaries of God's truth. That unfaithfulness might be in terms of what we look at or who we look at and what or how how we look at it or them. But then again, our, our unfaithfulness might be in a whole host of different ways as we we turn from being faithful to God and to his ways and turn to other things that we would put before him. Our desire is perhaps for our career or for our bank account or for the perfect lifestyle. Uh, for the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the things we buy, things that we know aren't 
wrong in and of themselves, but things that we know when we've got a desire for them that captivates us and leads us away from our faithfulness to God, we know the havoc that those things, whatever they are for us, can wreak. And so here's the heart of the problem. Better than any politician, better than any attempts, good as they might be, at writing manifestos, here's God's diagnosis that we're unfaithful to God by our nature, that we step outside the boundaries of God's truth, which are perhaps drawn even more tightly than we may have thought, that we're unfaithful to Him, that we're unfaithful to other people, that we're unfaithful to ourselves. We can't even live up to our own standards and expectations. That leaves us with the question, is there any solution? If we're we're looking at our political leaders, we don't just want a diagnosis of the problems, often they're fairly obvious, but we actually want somebody to say, well, actually, what's what's the solution uh, in all of this? And not just what's the solution, but God, are you prepared to live out the solution? Can I actually see it in your actions? Where is this all heading? And so that's what we're going to look at now. Just have a look at verse 10. Uh, And I'm glad that uh, Fiona... Uh, is here this evening, and some of the drama team. I wonder if you were Fiona, and if you were one of the drama team here at St. Andrews, and you were directing this as a scene, I wonder how you would direct it. How would you act this out? Everyone's gone. The stones have fallen to the floor. There's no one left to to condemn the woman because everybody's realized that they fall short of God's standards. There's only one person who's left, and that one person is the only person who hasn't fallen short of God's standards because he's God himself. And so there she stands in front of the one who is the only one on the planet who has the right to condemn her, and he doesn't. Full of grace, he loves her, and he forgives her, and full of truth, he tells her to go and leave her life of sin. The boundary of God's truth might be ever more tightly drawn, perhaps, than we ever expected, but the boundary of God's gracious love is wider perhaps than either we or this woman ever thought possible. No matter what she's done, no matter who she is, God loves her. He sees all the truth, nothing is hidden, and yet God loves her. You can almost hear Jesus saying, I have everything that you need Leave it all behind. Go and sin no more. I wonder if you were Fiona, how you would direct the person playing that woman to stand. I wonder if at the start of the scene there would have been dragging and uh, and pushing. Uh, I wonder if the woman's face would have been downcast, uh, perhaps muscles quivering, 
with fear and nervousness. Perhaps the woman unable really to hold herself upright. Uh, I wonder if there would have been some tears, perhaps tears, a mixture of tears of fear and tears of shame in her mind. But I wonder what she stands like at the end of the scene. I wonder what journey she goes on and how that's reflected in how she stands. Whether perhaps at the end she's there with her head raised, meeting Jesus' gaze, looking into his eyes of love for her. Perhaps eyes now not filled so much with tears of anguish and fear and shame, but filled with tears of joy and gratitude. Perhaps she's even standing now with a certain confidence. Not a confidence that she's mustered up in and of herself, but a confidence that's been given to her by Jesus who she stands in front of. I wonder now if there's actually a certain confidence in her posture. We sang in one of our songs earlier in the service, boldly I approach your your throne. I wonder whether God's gift of grace to her in Jesus has allowed her to stand in a certain confidence, knowing that she's been put right with God, she's been put right with other people, and she's been put right with herself. I wonder what stage direction best captures the posture of your life at the moment. I wonder, uh, we're going to be having communion later on this evening, Uh, and I wonder how uh, you're walking before God. Is it with a face down, a slight quiver, perhaps a slight nervousness and fear and anguish? Or is it with a certain confidence, not a confidence that you've got in and of yourself because of what you can muster up, but a confidence that has been given to you by Jesus through what he's done? Boldly I approach your throne. A couple of my uh, good friends are uh, Christian leaders. Uh, and over there, uh, the past three, uh, few years, uh, one of their children has uh, made some uh, life choices that they haven't always agreed with uh, because they believe that those life choices lie outside the boundaries of God's truth. Uh, as friends, um, friends with the whole family, uh, we've had the opportunity to chat together a lot uh, and to share together a lot, often through tears. And time and time again, we've come back to those two words of grace and truth. Uh, We've asked ourselves the question, what does it look like in everyday family life to be able to say to somebody who you deeply love, my understanding of God's truth doesn't allow me to agree with you, but the grace that God's shown me in Jesus means that I will always love you and that I will always be here for you. 
even though your choices might lead to pain, my love for you and the knowledge that I have of God's love for me means that I'm stood right here by you. God's truth is perhaps even more perfect than we thought possible. When it comes to God's boundaries, we've all stepped over the mark. But the arms of God's grace are perhaps wider than we can ever imagine. Jesus stands before us full of grace and truth. And he offers to lead us out of pain to a life of joy and forgiveness, walking confidently as a child of God. Let me close by uh, praying, uh, and then Roger and the band and Richard will lead us through the rest of our service. Our Father God, we thank you that in Jesus we see the one full of grace and truth. We thank you that as we look at his life and as we hear his words, there is a profound authenticity. We thank you that both the problem is clear and we thank you that the solution is on hand. And so we pray that you would help us to be those who walk confidently with you, not because of any rightness that we can magic up by our own efforts, but because in Jesus you have declared us right with you. Help us to rejoice in that truth and to go and sin no more. Amen.